What's going on guys? Welcome back to the show. Today's going to be a Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question on the question box. I appreciate you. And if you want your question answered on the podcast, that is your best way to do it. So I'm going to do my best to get through as many as I can. Let's get into it. First question from JC25. How long should you rest between sets for hypertrophy? One to two minutes or three to four minutes? Now, remember, hypertrophy means building muscle. So for building muscle, for hypertrophy work, one to three minutes is totally fine. Now, when should it be one minute? When should it be two minutes? When should it be three minutes? Can it ever be more? And I think to answer that question, we need to break it down a little bit more. Like, what is the goal of the set? What is the goal of each individual set? I'd say there's two goals. The first goal is to do at least five reps because we know that for the for, for maximum hypertrophy, we want to be in the five to 30 rep range, right? Sets of two and three don't produce a ton of hypertrophy. Sets of 30 to 50 don't produce as much hypertrophy. So in that five to 30 rep range, so the goal of the set is to do at least five reps and to have the target muscle be the limiting muscle. I think this is a big deal for a lot of people, a, a big perspective shift. You want the target muscle, the muscle you're looking to work to be the limiting muscle in that exercise. Every set of bicep curls should finish because your biceps hurt, because your biceps are telling you they can't do another rep. So you want to rest long enough for, let me see, one, two, three, four reasons here. You want to rest long enough to produce at least five reps. So that's the first thing. You want to rest long enough to produce another set of at least five reps. If you do a set of curls, you put the bar down, you pick it up two seconds later, and you do a set of two, that is not long enough because you aren't able to produce at least five more reps. Now we can talk about myo reps and rest pause techniques, but the goal of those is still to produce at least five reps. So you want to rest long enough to at least do another set of at least five reps. You also want to rest long enough for your cardio and your aerobic system to get back to baseline. You ever do a set of squats and, you know, you, you, you rack the bar, you step away from the rack and you're huffing and you're puffing and, you know, you're not even thinking about your legs because you're just so cardiovascularly tired, fatigued. I don't know if it's just me in terrible shape, but I do a set of, you know, five to 10 squats. God forbid more than 10 squats. My aer aerobic system is taxed. I need my rest time to be getting my cardio back to baseline. And the reason you want your cardio to get back to baseline is because if you start your next set of squats before your cardio gets back to baseline, your cardio will become the limiting factor in your squats. The next time you go into your set, if you go into a set of squats before you catch your breath from the previous set, your quads will not be the limiting factor. You go into a set of squats while you're still huffing and puffing, guess what? You're gonna have to rack the bar because your cardio is exhausted. And I feel like a lot of people already have a tough time feeling the target muscle. How many of you guys who are squatting don't even know what you're working? You're like, ah, oh, my legs, my back, like my cardio. Like it's a quad exercise. You want your quads to be the limiting factor. You wanna at least try and give your quads the best chance to be the limiting factor. And the way to do that is to rest long enough where your cardio gets back, back to baseline. Now, you also want your assistance muscles to get back to baseline. You want to rest long enough where those assistance muscles don't become the limiting factor in your next set. So we'll take that same squat example. Your squat works more or less every muscle in your body, but particular assistance muscles might be things like your lower back and your core, let's say. I guess those are two, two parts of the same thing, but okay. So in that squat example, you want to rest long enough where those assistance muscles don't become the limiting factor in your next set. If you rack the bar and you step off and you rest two minutes and your lower back, your core are still fatigued, you don't want to do your next set because remember, what's the point of the squat? 
you want to make the target muscle, the quads, the limiting factor. But if your core and your lower back are still tired from your previous set, don't go yet, right? Because you're going to get under, you're going to get, you're going to start squatting and your core and your lower back are going to tell you, I can't do anymore. That's not the point. The point that you want to squat to grow your quads. So you want to give your quads the best chance to become the limiting factor. And the way to do that is to make sure your cardio gets back to baseline and your assistance muscles get back to baseline. And the fourth thing you want to do is make sure your mindset is back to baseline. And the squat example is a good one because sometimes you finish a set of squats and it's been two minutes, maybe it's been three minutes, and you look at that bar and you're just not mentally in a place where you're ready to get back under it. And you're not, you don't feel strong again and you're not excited for the next set. And it, there's some central nervous system factors at play there, but I, I'd rather just say mindset. Like if you look at the bar, let's say it's a bench or a squat or a deadlift, and you're just not mentally ready to lift yet, take another minute, right? Let your mindset come back to a place where you're ready to attack the weights again. So four things you want to rest long enough for. One, to produce a set of at least five reps. Two, you want your cardio to get back to baseline, right? So you want to rest long enough for your cardio to come to baseline. You want to rest long enough for your assistance muscles to get back to baseline. And you want to rest long enough to be in the mindset to lift heavy for another set. And you want to do all of that because the goal is to make the target muscle the limiting muscle. And if your cardio or your assistance muscles or your mindset are the limiting factor, then you're just not getting the hypertrophy that you're looking for. If you do a set of squats and you have to stop because your cardio is the limiting factor, your quads aren't growing as much. If you are doing a set of squats and you have to rack the bar because your lower back and your core are fatigued, your quads aren't growing as much. If you're doing a set of squat and you have to rack the bar because you're just not mentally ready to do another hard set, guess what? Your quads are not growing as much as they should be. Now, a couple caveats here, or a couple things I'd like to say on the tail end before we move on is, yes, what does this usually work out to? It usually works out to one to three minutes for hypertrophy work. For strength training, when the loads are higher and the reps are lower and your, your central nervous system and your mindset and your assistance muscles might take even more of a beating because the weight is so high, you might need longer. You've heard people say, okay, for strength training, you need four to five to six, seven minutes, and that's potentially true. So if you're, this question was asked in the context of hypertrophy, one to three minutes is usually fine. But for strength training where, you know, producing uh, uh, sets at specific loads and specific reps becomes more and more important, resting a little bit longer can be more important. The last thing I'll say on this before we move on, it's already longer than I wanted to go on this question is, I, I, I mean this with all my heart. If you don't need to rest one to three minutes, you just are not working hard enough within your sets. And I'll break that down a little further. I think for compound exercises, the heavier the loads, your multi-joint, your multi-muscle group movements, your squats, your bench, your press, your pull-ups, your rows, those big multi-joint compound movements, resting two to three minutes is probably better. And for your isolation movements, your tricep pushdowns, your lateral raises, your bicep curls, those smaller muscle groups, resting one to two minutes is probably fine. But if you don't need to rest that long, you're not working hard enough in your set. Because even if you're doing a set of tricep pushdowns, like you should probably need a minute rest to get back to baseline. No, you don't need three minutes, but if you don't need one or you, you know, you're like, oh, just go right away. Like it, it makes such logical sense. If you finish a set and you're ready to go again very quickly, then it, it stands to reason that that set was not very hard. Like if you run a mile in six minutes and then you, you look at your, you know, your coach and you're like, oh, I'm ready to go again. You run another mile at six minutes. Like it stands to reason that that first mile must not have been hard because you just did it again right away with no rest. 
So if you don't need any rest or you find yourself, your coach tells you to rest one to three minutes and you know, you're standing there looking at the clock 40 seconds, you wanna go, you wanna go, you know, you're probably not working hard enough within your sets. You should be working hard enough where you welcome a rest. Next question is from Christina Source Rex and she asks, should I stick to heavyweights or a combo of weights and bodyweight bands to optimize? Let's break this down, let's keep it super simple. There isn't much of a difference between body weight and weights. Weights come into play when body weight becomes too easy. All that matters is that an exercise takes a target muscle close to failure in that 6 to 30 rep range. So if you're doing push-ups and you can do 12 and it takes you close to failure, a push-up is a great exercise for you to build your shoulders, your pecs, your triceps. If you can do 70 push-ups and then you get close to failure, a body weight push-up is no longer a good exercise for you to build muscle and strength. And you need to go to something like a bench press where you can add more external load or a weighted push-up. Take an air squat. Most people can do a lot more than 30 air squats before they get close to failure. So adding external load so that your reps fall back into that six to 30 rep range is likely necessary for most people. So there's not a big difference between body weight and weights. It, you know, body weight is just an easier version in some cases, right? At some point, body weight's gonna become too easy and you need to add external load. Now, because in the context of at-home training, like not everybody has a lot of external load available and it's okay to be creative with your body weight movements in the interim to make them harder, right? Slow down the eccentric, adding in pauses, you know, increasing range of motion, all of that stuff is totally fine. But when you have everything available, like this question seems to infer is that, you know, this person's probably going back to the gym and now has everything available, it's probably best to just go with what is difficult. And if you're doing body weight lunges and it's no longer hard, man, go grab some fucking weight and make it more challenging, right? You're not gonna, you're not, you're not gonna grow from doing 100 lunges, or at least you'll grow much better doing six to 30 rep lunges with some external load. So doing weights versus bands. Man, bands can be great. They have some utility. And since we've all been home and everyone's been working at working out at home and everybody has bands, they have provided us us with some stimulus that's very portable, very cheap, not super hard to set up, and that's great. And they have some utility. But when you have everything available, their utility goes down a bit, you know, in, in contrast to using weights. And most of that reason comes down to something we call resistance curve. Like as you push the band further, it gets harder, right? And as you, you know, let the band come up, it gets easier. That's not necessarily what we want for most exercises. Take like a band-assisted chin-up. At the bottom of a band-assisted chin-up, when that band is fully stretched, you get a ton of help. That's not really what you want because at the bottom of a chin-up is where most people are really weak and they need to get stronger. So when people do band-assisted chin-ups all day, all their life, even if you're progressing really great, you're never really getting that much stronger at the bottom of the chin-up where a lot of people need a lot of help. So doing something like a machine-loaded assisted chin-up machine where the resistance curve is more static, it doesn't get easier or harder across the movement, it's the same weight the whole time, is likely better. Now, sometimes adding a resistance band to certain exercises in an attempt to shift the resistance curve has some utility, and we're not gonna go too deep into that. What you need to realize is, most practically speaking, if you're headed back to the gym and you've been using body weight and bands, you're probably better off using mostly body weight and weights. And I say body weight and weights because if a body weight exercise is challenging for you, if a chin up or a push up or a lunge or a split squat is hard at body weight, then use it. But if you need external load, use that. And bands can be used a bit more sparingly. Um, I'd say they're a really great at home you know, piece of equipment, but when you have everything under the sun available, I would use them quite infrequently. 
So I hope that helps. I don't want you to throw away your bands or never use them again. But if you have the choice of doing a band assisted chin up or a machine assisted chin up, do the machine assisted chin up. If you have a chance to do a cable tricep push down or a band assisted push down, do the cable. If you have a chance to do a cable row or a band row, do the cable row. The band is the band row is only going to get more difficult as you get more towards con the contraction, and it's going to uh, uh, it's not going to give you that stretch under load that you really want. So it's going to make it hard at the contraction. Think about a tricep push down. You're doing the band the band tricep push down. You push down. You lock at your elbows. It gets really hard at the bottom, but as you stretch your tricep, as you bend at the elbow and you bring the band back up, there's not a lot of load. So we really do miss out on that loaded stretch component of the movement a lot of times when we use bands. Next question from Tara Faloon says, how many sets per muscle group to maintain muscle? I need to lift as little as possible while fixing hormones. Two things I'll say. First, how many sets per muscle group to maintain muscle? Less than you think. Maintaining muscle is much easier than growing muscle. Sending a stimulus to your body says, hey, don't take any of that muscle in case we need it, is much easier than pushing your body outside of homeostasis and pushing muscle growth. So you need less sets that you think and everybody's different. And the second thing I'll say is, man, fixing your hormones is probably more important, much more important. And I don't even know what fixing your hormones means, but let's say you've been in a, you know, a state of restriction for a really, really long time and some, some restrict, uh, um, suppressed um, sex hormones, et cetera. Man, getting that in check is more important than any of your muscle building. And even if you spent no time lifting, you wouldn't lose as much, much muscle as you thought, as you think. And it would come back so unbelievably fast that it's probably not a huge issue. Now, in general, how many sets per muscle group to maintain muscle? It's probably something like four to six sets per muscle group per week. It seems like good range as long as everything is sufficiently close to failure, you know, probably within about three reps. And four to six sets is not a lot. I mean, practically maintaining muscle with two times a week training is very possible as long as it's, you know, intelligently organized and the sets are taken close enough to failure. So... How many sets per muscle group to maintain muscle? About four to six. But remember, if your you know, primary goal is fixing your hormones, and I'm not saying you shouldn't worry about it, of course. I think you're asking the right question. It's like, okay, I don't want to push homeostasis, but I also don't want to lose muscle. I get it. Just remember the hierarchy of what's important right now. You know, Muscle memory is a real thing, and any muscle that you do lose comes back so unbelievably quickly. And this insane fear that the fitness industry puts upon people of losing muscle. Man, if you lose muscle you once had, one, it happens slower, much slower than you think. It requires much longer period of time than you think to lose a substantial amount of muscle. And it comes back much faster than you think. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Next question is from Leah Darsky. What's up, Leah? Um, favorite quotes about self-accountability and ownership. You know, there are a couple that come to mind and I should have prepared. I'm gonna see, let me think. Well. One of them is a quote, I can't even remember who it's by. It might have been by Mike Isretel um, from one of his lectures. But we were talking about, you know, personal responsibility and how you view the things in your life with a with a with an air of personal responsibility. And he said, how can, you, how can you own your wins if you don't also own your losses? And I feel like a lot of times what we do is we look at the losses in our life. I mean, imagine a, a, a poker player, right? Two hands, and for those of you guys who don't play poker, just, you know, whatever, generally speaking, if you ask a poker player about his worst beats, his worst losses, the hands that he lost that were the worst, 
they're always luck. They're always luck-based. They're always non-personal responsibility plays. You know, it's always, oh, I played it perfectly and I just got unlucky. If you ask him about his best plays, he's going to tell you all about the things he did great. He's like, oh, I outplayed this guy. Like, it's never going to be luck. What we do is we take our wins and the things we do right and we attribute them to personal responsibility. And we take our losses and the things that don't go well and we attribute them to random chance and, you know, God and, and, and you know, fate and, and it's not meant to be and... No, 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 no. How can you own those wins if you don't also own your losses? I mean, you're either taking personal responsibility for everything or nothing. Because if you pick and choose, that's when you start to get into this victim mentality of like, okay, some things are in my control and some things aren't. Like, it gets a whole lot messier when you think of it that way. How can you own your wins if you don't also own your losses, right? How can you decide which things were per you're gonna take personal responsibility for and which things you're not? And if things don't go your way, the best thing you can do to change it is to take responsibility. And I think a lot of like, man, I think that one of the best things that we can internalize is that everything is your fault. And it's a, I find that per, the idea of personal responsibility is a bit triggering and it's a bit discouraging when it should be a bit empowering. It should be very empowering. The idea that you're in control of everything should be net net, very empowering. The idea that you have the power to change everything, that everything is your fault, good and bad. It allows you to internalize and feel really good about your wins. And it allows you to look at your losses and know that you have the power to change things. So that's, I suppose, my favorite quote. This understanding of like, how can you attribute your, your personal responsibility to the things that go well and then random chance and chaos and, and fate to the things that don't go well. You can't do that. You can't pick and choose. You're either taking responsibility for everything that happens or nothing. Next question is from Kim J. Noel. She says, deadlift without keeping my head up? Is that okay? My back feels better when I hinge with my head straight. I'm going to keep this short, sweet, to the point. The answer is yes. Deadlifting without keeping your head up is fine. Head position in the squat and the deadlift is a non-issue. There is no loading on your C-spine. Whether you look down or neutral or up, you need to do what's best for you. Some people do best with their head up. Chinese weightlifters are notoriously or notoriously look up all the time. Some people do better with the more neutral, right? Like you're talking about with your head straight. It's great. And some people do better with more of a chin tuck. I know I do better with a bit more of a chin tuck with my head a bit more, at least neutral, a bit more, um, a bit more flexed. Like when I look up, I tend to, my form tends to break down in a way that I'm not happy with. So the best thing to do is to see which orientation allows you to perform the movement without sacrificing technique. Usually what that sacrifice looks like is, is, is you're sacrificing a neutral T-spine or your lower back rounds, right? So you're rounding through your upper back or your lower back too much. And you might find that the cue of head up really helps you. And I'm thinking of the deadlift, but also the squat. Like for some people, when I, you know, you tell them to look up, it helps them maintain, a, you know, a proper amount of extension through their spine. And some people, it doesn't. Some people, it either pushes them into hyperextension or it causes them to forget other parts of the technique. Like, you need to find which orientation works best for you and allows you to perform the, mo the movement without sacrificing technique. And if that means looking up, that's fine. If it means looking, you know, I know for me personally, I look on a deadlift, I look like 12 inches out in front of me on the floor. And some people say you should look straight ahead. And some people saying you should look up. Like, man, whichever one of those feels the best for you and allows you to perform the movement with really good technique, do that one. There is, this is not a safety issue. This is a personal preference issue. And I'm 
I don't know if any physical therapists or anybody followed this podcast, but I can imagine there's gonna be some hate on that, but that's the truth. There's just no research to back up that that head orientation leads to greater injury risk. There's just mechanistically, there's no loading on your C-spine. Um, where you're moving your head isn't consequential in terms of injury prevention or, or yeah, rant over there. Next question is from jrober74. She says, keep running while reversing, yay or nay? And this question, I love this question. Super, super important question here. Here's the deal. This question is usually asked, right? So should I keep running while I reverse? It's usually asked because somebody is doing a ton of cardio and they fucking hate it. And they're thinking, oh, I'm, you know, I'm done with my deficit phase. I'm going to try and reverse and get to maintenance. Can I cut the crap with all this cardio now? And what that indicates to me is that during your deficit phase, you were using cardio in an unsustainable manner to create a deficit. Now, I'm not saying that you can't ever do that. What I am saying, it's probably better to do a to do one amount of cardio through all your phases. And that amount of cardio should be an amount of cardio that you enjoy, that's sustainable, that's good for your health. Like, I don't want you to be like, yeah, in my deficit, I run seven times a week. And then I reverse, I, I cut it down to three. And then when I'm gaining, I do zero. Like, man, pick an amount of cardio that keeps you healthy, that you enjoy, and then use nutrition as that primary modulator for going into a deficit or a maintenance or a surplus. Like, I don't like and specifically, this is my experience with clients. I don't like when cardio becomes the secondary variable that we're making massive changes to across the spectrum of deficit to reversing to maintenance to surplus. Like most people are asking this because they fucking hate the amount of cardio they're doing. And if that is the truth, then you shouldn't do that much cardio ever. I mean, most likely ever. I mean, you can do it without engaging an amount of cardio. You can do whatever you want, body composition-wise, health-wise, without an amount of cardio that you fucking hate as long as it's not zero steps per day. Like, do an amount of cardio that you enjoy, that you can sustain, and then use nutrition to modulate weight loss, weight maintenance, or weight gain. Don't triple your cardio in a deficit and then go all the way down to zero in a surplus that's just likely not a really great use of those two variables. It's probably best to keep your cardio relatively static because the reason you're doing cardio is to maintain some, you know, first of all, lifting is amazing for your heart and you don't need to be crushing hit class and going for running and all this. You don't need to be doing that to keep a healthy heart. You, if you lift and you're relatively active, like getting, you know, eight to 12,000 steps, your heart is healthy as fuck. But you know, some form of dedicated walking, even if it's just fucking getting an amount of steps is good for your heart, good for your overall health. So you should be doing it, but it should be an amount that you can sustain, not an amount that the minute you get out of a deficit, you want to jump away from. So I hope that helps. Um, yeah. So direct answers. I, I would dial it back, not because of anything specific to the reverse diet, but because it sounds like you hate it, or at least that it's too much and too much for, from an enjoyment and a sustainability perspective. Next question is from Fit Librarian 2019. It says, do you offer meal plans? Short, straight up answer, no. I do nutri more nutrition coaching, more integrative nutrition coaching where I'm working together in a collaborative effort, one-on-one -on -one with somebody to come up with a strategy that aids their goals. Like I, nor anybody else, should tell you exactly what and when to eat. It sounds tempting, it's never the answer, right? Now, I believe there's a difference between strictly following a meal plan, right? Strictly following a meal plan and having a plan, right? I think 
there's a difference between rigidly and strictly to a T following a meal plan and having a plan or using planning to do better, right? It's okay to collaborate with your coach on a general plan full of foods you choose for days that allow for it, as long as you're educated on principles to guide you in life inevitably happens. Like it's okay to sit down with your coach and say, hey, life is pretty busy. I would do really well if I spent some time preparing some, some uh, um, staple meals that I can go to on a regular basis. And it's okay to put together like a mock perfect day and be like, okay, on days I can I can hit this. I can I can uh, uh, remove some of that those decisions from my day, and I can fall back onto this plan. But it's not okay for you to not know what to do when life inevitably happens, and you have to deviate from that plan. I mean, meal plans work until you have to eat off the meal plan, which is inevitably going to happen very soon. And that's where most people have no clue because they haven't been taught. They don't have any education or principles or guidelines for when life happens. So. I think there's a difference between strictly following a meal plan, which I think is a, a very poor idea, and having a plan, or maybe working together with your coach to come up with a mock perfect day that you can do maybe, you know, whatever, a couple times a week. And at the very least, it's a good uh, learning tool for you to kind of go through, maybe you're tracking it on MyFitnessPal, maybe you're just writing it out on a piece of paper, to kind of go through the mental exercise of putting together what a day might look like given the context of your goals. So no, I don't offer meal plans. But you know, not you know, not infrequently will I work with a client on what a mock perfect day might look like. How much time do we have here? A couple more. From Jennifer B X twenty three, I saw you posted about footwear. Does that go for upper body day as well? What if I want to run and lift in the same session? Um, yeah. So the the post that I posted this week about what to wear in the gym was specifically and, and said so in the in the title there was specifically in the context of leg day. I think on upper body day, you're doing bench press, you're doing pull-ups, you're doing curls, you're doing whatever, lateral raises, all that stuff. I don't think the same rules apply in terms of you know maximizing force production by using a flat sole. I, I don't think any of those things are as important. If you're doing really heavy, you know, barbell overhead presses, push presses, um, you know, really heavy barbell rows, like may maybe, maybe it would be better, but it is a whole lot less consequential when we're talking about upper body day. For me, with my clients, people that I've worked with in person, man, if you're doing upper body day, you wear whatever shoes you want, it's totally fine. But when we're going to lower body day, we're looking for a flat sole or a flat sole with an elevated heel, or we're just gonna go barefoot. So you said, what if I wanna run and lift in the same session? Well, there are some shoes that are kind of made for that. Um, I'd say none of them do it really, really well. And I think that that's just like a, the nature of trying to do two things well at the same time. You're not going to make make a great running shoe and a great lifting shoe because one thing that's great for running is not good for lifting and vice versa. So I think there are some some decent, I think I think it also depends on how long you're running. I think if you're just going to do run a mile or whatever, like a short run, 10 minutes, whatever, um, running in a pair of Metcons or running in a pair of Flyknit Metcons is totally fine. I don't think it's the end of the world. Just like I don't think it's the end of the world for you to lift in running shoes. I don't think it's the end of the world. I think it's not the best practice and it's an easy fix for most people. So it's worth doing. So just the same as I don't think it's the end of the world to run into pair of Metcons or Flyknit Metcons. Like, um, I think that's a totally fine and I hate to name drop those two shoes, um, but those are the ones I have the most experience with. Another thing you can do is bring a second pair of shoes, right? You can show up to the gym in your running shoes. You can bring a pair of lifting shoes in your gym bag. You can lift them, lift in them, and you can change and you can lift in your running shoes. You can also come in your running shoes, 
do your deadlifts and your squats barefoot and then put your running shoes back on and go do your cardio. Like that's a totally fine way to do it. I think it's both not the end of the world to break some of those rules. And I think at the same time, it's such an easy thing to not break the rules on that you might as well just freaking do it. Like lift in your flat sole or your elevated heel or barefoot and run in your cushiony curved shoes, which is fine. Both of them are great. Get a pa second pair of shoes. Most people listening to this have fucking hundred pair of shoes. Get one for lifting, one for running, bring them both and change or lift barefoot and go running in your running shoes. And last one for today is from at MegastanX00. What are your thoughts on the common advice that your knees shouldn't go past your toes on a squat? Yeah, really quick answer here. Your knees likely should go past your toes on a squat. So I think this, you know, folklore was or came about because a lot of times when the knee does go past the toe, for a lot of people, they don't have the requisite ankle mobility to keep their heel on the ground. And what happens is if you're squatting and you're on your way down and you're letting your knees travel past your toes because I said so, or you saw it on Instagram, because technically that is the right way to squat. You do want your knees to go past your toes, but your heel pops up because you don't have the requisite ankle mobility. There's a lot of sheer forces on the knees. The minute you go off of your whole foot, right, your heel pops up and now all of a sudden you're on your toes and you have a lot of weight on your back and you're going down into a squat with a lot of knee flexion, that's a lot of tension transferred onto the knee joint. That's not good. So a lot of times when the knee goes past the toe, for some people, depending on how far past the toe we're talking, it, it will cause your heel to pop up. And that is not good. So I think that this advice was you know, it's, it's meant well, because if your knees never go past your toes, it's, it's probably, you know, it's very unlikely that your heel's gonna pop up. It's unlikely you get into the scenario where there's a lot of sheer forces on your knee and bad for your joints. But I think the advice is, again, not comprehensive and not, not, uh, not wholesome enough here. Like your knees should go past your toes on a squat. They should. But if you can't do that without your heels popping up, then it requires either working on your ankle mobility or not going as low or getting a pair of heel elevated shoes, which can kind of counteract, you know, the fact that you have the the ankles and the, the ankle mobility of like a 517 year old Neanderthal or whatever. Like, I think it's, it's the advice is well-founded and it's it's trying to help people not, you know, shift their body weight too, too much far or too far forward that they go up onto their heel and it, it messes with their knees. But at the same time, like there are ways around it where you can allow the knees to go past the toes and still maintain perfectly healthy form um, safe and effective form. So I think it's, I think most people should not listen to this. They should allow their knees to go past their toes. But when you do that, take a look at what happens at your heel. At your heel. Are you shifting up onto your toes or is your heel pressed hard through the floor? And if it is, then you're doing it right. All right. So hope that helps guys. I appreciate you guys all listening and I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you enjoyed it, if you found value, do me a favor and take a screenshot of your phone and post it to your social media. If you do, tag me so I can say thanks. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Jordan Lips Fitness on Instagram, or you can email me, jordanlips at jordanlipsfitness.com, or check out the website, jordanlipsfitness.com. I'd love to chat. Have a great day.